the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are pure and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's an amazing statement about the word of God. And my prayer for you is that many of you are very young in relation to me, and so feel real auspicious about the next 50 years for you. That patterns of life would be built in, in terms of meditating on the word of God, praying over the word of God, fasting for all the fullness of God through the word, that that would happen for you and that when you're my age, you would look back with great satisfaction upon your walk with Jesus, that it had been vital. My assumption in this class is that the key to a joyful powerful Christian walk, life, is continual communion with the living God through his word, by his spirit. Communion, or you could use the word fellowship. A a vital, living, authentic, feelable fellowship with God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Out of that hourly walk, communion, flows your power as a Christian, your ability to fight sin, your ability to love people, your ability to endure suffering, your ability to stay married and parent wayward children and do good to those who hate you. So I regard this seminar as very foundational to everything. It's not like a little, oh, Calvinism is the real thing and Christian hedonism is the real thing and and those other seminars that he does, that's the real thing. And this is kind of the icing. It's not the case, just the reverse. You won't know anything aright 
You won't think right about anything. You won't do right about anything. You won't know God. You won't enjoy God if, if this seminar doesn't get some traction in your, in your life. And another preliminary thought I have before I pray is, I was saying to Marshall and Carl on the way over, the younger generation, at least the younger generation of the emerging gospel lovers are wired to react quickly and negatively to anything that feels legalistic, which is good and dangerous because being young, you may not have the best sniffer for what is legalistic. You may throw some babies out as you try to throw out the bathwater of legalism. And, and I, I don't know what I can say except to just plead with you, don't assume you've got that figured out. Don't, don't assume that at age 20 or 25 or whatever that you know how to divide up legalism and freedom. You, you don't probably. Life is complex, really complex, and and relationships are complex, including the one with God. Nobody stays married out of romance. Nobody. And nobody stays with God out of romance. There's some days when you stay because you made a promise. And then the romance can be born again. And so it is with God. And in those days of obedience, if anybody calls you a legalist, just quietly walk the other way. I speak whereof I know. I want you to enjoy him at age 66. Enjoy him freely. And you won't get there without discipline. I promise you, you won't get there. So life is, is, is beautifully spontaneous when it's at its best and it's ruggedly disciplined as necessary and all in all it's a good life so preliminary remarks to hopefully wet your taste that this is serious and and I hope you'll you'll pray with me that the Lord would make it remarkably uh, lifelong helpful for you. So let's pray. So Father in heaven, here we are now. Mainly we're going to be over your word together. Going to listen to some testimonies from people who've walked better than we've ever walked in this regard. And we ask that you would guard our minds so that we're not deceived by the evil one. Guard our hearts and grant that we would have clear thinking right now and good attentiveness in this evening hour, and that our hearts would be strangely and wonderfully warmed like on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us when Jesus opened to us the word of God? So, Jesus, do this word-opening work. This evening, I pray so that the hearts of your people would burn, and if any is here, who's not been born of God and has no spiritual taste buds for what I'm talking about and is always putting it through a naturalistic sieve, grant that they would be made alive. 
I ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I will try to follow this uh, outline because I've got, um, I've got the slides that correspond to that. And uh, I would have to skip them if I was going to do anything other than follow this, what you have in front of you. So there you go. I hope that helps. We're going to begin with um, some illustrations. And uh, John G. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides. Are we together on this? There we go. Vanuatu today. Um, in the South Seas, he was born in Scotland, 1824, and experienced a joy in God in the most dangerous and discouraging circumstances. So here's the question I ask Patton. Where did your joy come from? Where did this deep repose that you had in these life-threatening situations? And the answer is it rested most deeply in the experience of personal communion with Jesus Christ mediated through the promises of God in the written word, the Bible, most central to his communion with God seems to have been the promise, lo, I am with you always. And what I hope God does for you is so work in your heart that when you read something so familiar as this last phrase of the book of Matthew Behold, look, lo, I am with you always. You will get to the point where that is a personal address of the risen living Christ to you as though he were standing at your side. Because that's the way Patton experienced it, as you'll see. And he experienced it that way in some very raw, raw circumstances. This promise had been given precisely in the context of the Great Commission. Go make disciples of all nations. Lo, I am with you always. More than any other promise, this one mediated the presence of Jesus to John Patton in all his dangers. After the measles epidemic that killed thousands on the islands and for which the missionaries were blamed, he said this. During the crisis, I felt generally calm and firm of soul, standing erect with my whole weight on the promise, lo, I am with you always. Precious promise, how often I adore Jesus for it and rejoice in it. Blessed be his name. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In his words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. So that's your goal in, in appropriating the promises of God that they are spoken to you through the Bible so real that it would not surprise you if you looked up like Stephen and saw the one speaking the words. 
When the Holy Spirit takes the Bible and applies it to your heart, the bookishness of it, the academicness of it, the skill in reading of it, the black and white marks on the page, they all fade away and the connection between persons happens. That's what this seminar is about. Fellowship with God, communion with God through words like this. This was the central one for John Patton. Let's watch him. I felt his supporting power. It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smiles of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. That's a quote from Hebrews 11. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing. This is a quote from how Moses went out from Egypt in in Hebrews 11. He went out as seeing him who is invisible. We got fighter verses at Bethlehem that we memorize each week. And the fighter verse for this week is... um, This slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen or transient for the things that are unseen are eternal. As we look to the unseen. You can't look at unseen or can you? This says you can't. And that verse says you can. The Christian life is lived in steady state gazing at what you cannot see and seeing it. Through the word, by the spirit. So the word is, lo, I am with you right now in this room tonight And you look at him, and he's not there. And he's there. And you see him with the eyes of the heart. That is, you know by the Spirit. That promise is being fulfilled in this room right now for John and for me. Amazing. One of the most powerful paragraphs in his autobiography, and I recommend it to you, the autobiography of of John Patton, describes his experience hiding in a tree. Now, you've got to get this. This is terrifying. He's hiding in a tree at the mercy of an unreliable chief as hundreds of angry natives hunt him for his life. Being entirely... Here's... Here's his words. Being entirely at the mercy of such doubtful and vacillating friends, I thought I, though perplexed, felt it best to obey. In other words, go up in the tree and I'll take him that way. And he didn't even know if that's going to be true. I climbed into the tree and was left there alone in the bush. The hours I spent there 
live all before me as if it were but yesterday. I heard the frequent discharging of muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all my sorrows did my Lord draw nearer to me and speak more soothingly to my soul than when in the moon than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves and the night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Now, when I speak of communion with Christ or communion with God, that's what I mean. He's telling all his heart to Jesus. That's what you do to friends, right? And Jesus speaks back, Lo, I am with you to the end. And they have this communion. That's what it is. All of his heart being poured out to his Jesus and Jesus speaking the infallible word which the Holy Spirit makes feelably true and real. Jesus is in the tree. That's what he felt, believed, knew, was real. Alone yet not alone, he says, If it be to glorify my God, I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree, to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy his consoling fellowship. If thus, this is a closing question for you, if thus thrown back upon your own soul, alone, all alone, maybe tonight in your hotel room or wherever, Alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then? That's the question at the beginning of this seminar. Have you a friend who alone, all alone, in the bush, in the grip of death, a friend who will never? Oh, the sweetness of fellowship with Jesus. The sweetness of walking with the living Christ. Everybody else in your life is fickle. Are they not? I mean, pick your favorite person, your wife, your husband. They're all fickle. They are. They may love you to death. And they don't come through for you the way you'd like them to. He's never that way. Ever. Oh my, what a privilege to be a Christian. So that's Patton. Here's Newton. John Newton's even better. I mean, he's, he, I think he was a better person. Patton was probably not easy to get along with. I mean, you don't survive muskets pointed in your face without being a certain hard guy. <laughs> Newton was as tender, even though he was a slave dealer, and God just broke him in half, you know. He, he wrote Amazing Grace, you know the story. But he has a few things to teach us here by way of introduction to the nature of communion with God. Okay, so let's watch him get saved. And then let's watch him discover what communion with God is, which didn't happen at the same time, interestingly enough. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was awakened from the spiritual blindness and fall of his utter destitution. Wretchedness comes from the hymn. 
wretch, saved a wretch like me, on March 21, 1748, on board the ship Greyhound during a violent storm at sea. So God scared the hell out of him, literally. He, he describes how he was only partially converted, though because he did not yet, though because he did not yet know what communion with God was. Here's what he said. Though I cannot doubt that this change, when God met him on the greyhound in the storm, this change, so far as it prevailed, was wrought by the spirit and power of God. Yet still I was greatly deficient in many respects. And this is just so true of many who get saved, right? It may be true of many in this room now. You, 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 you met Jesus, you put your faith in Jesus, and, and God led you to this seminar because you know you're deficient. In fact, if I had you raise your hand, you'd all raise your hand. Me too. Deficient in prayer, deficient in meditation, deficient in fasting. I don't even know if I should fast. What, what, what's this fasting stuff? Um, and he just felt very deficient, as many, many of us still do. I was in some degree affected with a sense of my enormous sins. Oh, yes. But I was little aware of the innate evils of my heart. Now, here's a growth point for Newton. When he met Christ on the boat, he knew he sinned. He was a slave dealer. He was a lecher. I mean, name the sin, he did it. All right? But, but when he ran to Jesus... He knew very little about corruption, where it all came from. He just knew he did it, and he felt horrible, and that's a good place to start. But he had to learn sins come from somewhere. They come from sinners. They come from inner, innate corruption, fallenness. He he just didn't know about that. I had no apprehension of the spirituality and the extent of the law of God or the hidden life of a Christian as it consists in communion with God by Jesus Christ. So he, he just, he, there was this transaction that he was thinking about, because I'm going to run to you, I need your forgiveness, I'll put my faith in you. And the whole dimension of walking with God and communing with God was, was foreign to him. At this stage, notice how he describes this, namely a continual dependence on him for hourly supplies of wisdom, strength, comfort, was a mystery that I had yet no knowledge. So he's thinking of communion with God as hourly supplies of wisdom, strength, comfort. So he's walking through his day. He became a pastor, but he's walking through his day, and hourly he's looking away to his living Lord for, I need wisdom right now. I need strength right now. I need comfort right now as I walk into this next conversation, as I make this next phone call, as I write this next note. I need you, I need you, I need you. And there's this constant reliance upon the outpouring of the Spirit by, by the Word for for strength and comfort and wisdom, anything you need. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus hourly. Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies hourly so that hourly God may get the glory. That's the way Christians live. They, they walk in a steady state looking away for help. We're the neediest of all people. 
We shouldn't look like we're cocky. I acknowledge the Lord's mercies in pardoning what was past, but depended chiefly upon my own resolution. This is the way he was acting to do better for the time uh, to come. I cannot consider myself to have been a believer. And then he adds, in the full sense of the word. I think if you'd pushed on and said, now, were you a believer? I think he would have said, I'm not sure. I think that's what he would have said. Because when he added in the full sense of the word, I said, what's that? Like half sense believer or full believer to 75 cent believer. What is that? So you may be in that situation. You may say, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's a biblical thing to say, isn't it? Well, that's where we all are. Nobody's the perfect believer. Till a considerable time afterwards, sometime between 1752 and 1756, on a morning in April, he wrote, prayed over a part of the eighth of Romans in a way of paraphrase with some readiness. That is, his heart was somewhat eager in getting into it. I greatly fail in the duty of meditation and am forced to use some artifice with myself to do it. Now, here we start moving toward at least Newton's sense that given his own recalcitrance, his own disinclination to the word of God, he needed some, as he called it, artifice with myself. And here's the kind of thing he means to do it at all. Thus, sometimes I turn them into a prayer form. So he reads the Bible, Romans 8, and he turns it into a prayer. That's a, he called that an artifice. That's, I don't know how anybody can pray longer than three minutes without doing that. Because Satan and your flesh and a thousand distractions are trying to keep you from praying. But if you have the word in front of you and you keep turning it into prayer, then you can go for as long as the Bible is long. Sometimes, where did I lose my place? Thus, sometimes I turn them into prayer form. Sometimes I suppose myself in an imaginary conversation. See, conversing back and forth. These little artifices. Sometimes that I am called upon to speak on a point. So he's reading Romans 8 and he imagines himself, no, give a little talk on that verse right now. So he gives a little talk to himself. Isn't that remarkable? This is John Newton. I mean, if if John Newton needs help, good night. What hope is there for the rest of us? Well, same same hope that, that he had. Without something of this sort, these artifices, I'm not able to engage myself, to attend with any fixedness of thought. Does that comfort you at all? His mind was all over the place. It just ran here and there, and he, it wasn't fixed on the word. It jumped out of the Bible. It jumped onto the, you know, the temperature in the room and jumped onto the dust on the windowsill and jumped onto the sound of the bus going by outside and it jumped on the smell of bacon from downstairs. It's just it's jumping every which way except in the Bible. That's the way the... The human brain does. 
And with it, alas, how seldom I would remember to pray for grace and direction in this matter that my delight may be in the law of God to meditate therein day and night. Well, bless you, John Newton, for your struggle. It bore good fruit, and we are thankful. So that's enough by way of biographical illustrations of the kind of thing that I mean when I say communion with God. So now we're going to go to another man, only instead of reading about his life, we're going to let him teach us about this, namely John Owen's Trinitarian Structure of Communion with God. And I brought along this book. I asked Matt in the bookstore if he had any of these. He's got a few, but uh, I think if you want to order it through the bookstore, he'll he'll let you sign up for it. This is... uh, Communion with the Triune God, John Owen, edited by Kelly Capick and Justin Taylor. And this is a good modern um, formatting of, venture this, probably the most important book on communion with God there is outside the Bible. I, don't, I haven't read all of them, so I don't know if that's true or not. So you always have to be aware of people that talk like that. Um, you know, given the two or three I've read. <laughs> but I, I don't think I'm giving my personal opinion here. The reason I say it is because um, nobody that I know of tackled it quite like this. Owen tackled the issue of fellowship with God, communion with God, by asking the question, what's unique about the way we relate to the Father in fellowship, the way we relate to the Son in fellowship, and the way we relate to the Spirit in fellowship, because each of them has a unique way of relating to us, and we perhaps should make some returns that are especially suited for the way they have loved us. So I'm going to talk about that for a few minutes uh, with the slides, but here's, here's where I'm getting it all in this particular introduction. So communion with God, and there are other editions besides this one, but this is the most contemporary one and, and um, worthy of your investment. John Owen has written what may be the most thorough treatment of communion with God as an experience the saints enjoy distinctly with each of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. The title of the book published in 1657 was this, Of Communion with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, each person distinctly in love, grace, and consolation, or the saints' fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost unfolded. You know, the titles of books in 1600s and 1700s just took the place of tables of contents. So they saved some space on the second page. Here's Owen's definition of communion with God. Our communion, then, with God consists in his communication of himself unto us with our returnal, we don't, we don't use that word anymore. I didn't even know it was a word when I read it. Return. Our return unto him of that which he requireth and accepteth, flowing from that union which in Christ Jesus we have with him. So his definition of communion with God is God communicates himself to us and we make some returns. And that back and forth is called fellowship or called communion 
with God. So what are these returns that we make to God and in communion with him? Answer. He says, the way and means then on the part of the saints whereby in Christ they enjoy communion with God are all the spiritual and holy actings and doings of their souls in those graces and by those ways wherein the moral and instituted worship of God doth consist. And what he means by that difference, faith, there's one return. Love, there's another return. Trust, joy, these are are the natural or moral worship of God, whereby those in whom they are have communion with him. So we have communion in trusting him, loving him, enjoying him. Now, these are either immediately acted on God and not tied to any ways or means outwardly manifesting themselves, or else they are farther drawn out in solemn prayer, verbal, praises according to that which he hath appointed. So that's what he meant by instituted, moral instituted. So simply, he's saying the returns that we make to God are the inward, immediate actings of the soul, faith, love, joy, gratitude, hope to God, crying out, and further drawn out in corporate acts of worship where prayers are appointed, songs are appointed, confessions are appointed, and so on. And that would be an extension further out. Those being instituted by God and we follow his rules and these being spontaneous actings of of the soul. Those are the returns. So why, we may ask, Owen, communion with each person of the Trinity? My guess is that for many of you in this room, this has never occurred to you. The idea of communing with God, fellowship with God, not an unfamiliar thought and a desire of your soul. The thought of uniquely fellowshipping with the Spirit and uniquely fellowshipping with the Son and uniquely fellowshipping with the Father, new for many. And it was for me, for sure, when I read that book. I had not made any attempt in those directions, at least not in those intentional categories. There being such a distinct... Here's his answer. Why would you do this? There being such a distinct communication of grace from the several persons of the deity, the saints must needs have distinct communion with them. So the Father relates in such a distinct way, the Son in a distinct way, and the Spirit in a distinct way. It would be strange not to have any personal response to the person of the Spirit and person of the Son and person of the Father if the Father has done things for me that are distinct from the Son and and so on. So just when you think about it, well, yes, and we just haven't thought very much about, yeah, they are persons. We say that in our faith, and why not relate to them as persons? It remaineth only to intimate in a word wherein this distinction of each of them serving us lies, and what is the ground thereof? Now, this is that the Father doth, by way of original authority, 
He doth it, that is, he communicates himself to us by way of original authority. The Son, by way of communicating from a purchased treasury. The Son purchased all our blessings. The Father didn't purchase them by shedding his blood. The Spirit didn't purchase them by shedding his blood. That was the unique work of the Son. And the Holy Spirit by way of immediate efficacy. So here's some Bible passages that unpack what Owen is getting at. First, some Bible verses about the presence of the Father, the Son, and then some verses about how we fellowship with each of the distinct members of the Trinity. I promise that the Father will be with us. Make sure that your character is free, this is Hebrews 13, from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. This is the Father. This is a quote from the Old Testament. This is the Father talking. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So when we think of God as our Father and the Father of the Godhead, we have a, a word spoken to us that as Father in the Trinity, this is a pledge he makes to us. Another one for the Father. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So that's spoken to the church, and God does it as the Father. Or another one. Uh, I'm not sure why I used this version. My this is such a precious text to me. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up with the right hand of my righteousness. There is no promise in all the Bible, bar none, that I have used more often in more difficult situations than that one. It is the sound of the gears in my brain when they're in neutral ready to be engaged at any moment when I'm in need. If, if I cannot think of a promise from my morning devotions to apply to a situation of need, this is the one that kicks in. Just, just ready to go any time. Just push the button and the, and, the, and the gears come together and it goes. And it has served me gloriously. I love this promise. It is given by, by my Father to me. I'll be with you. I'm not saying that The Son hasn't made a similar promise. He clearly has. Or the Spirit. But we have it from from the Father. Now here's here's some words from the Son. Teaching then to observe all that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. So you have patents dealing directly with Jesus as his friend in the tree. And he could have done it from the Father. But he happened to do it with the Son. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This is, this is a word from the risen Christ to the church in Revelation that I'm knocking. This is not a text mainly for unbelievers. You can apply it that way without ruining it. 
but it's mainly a church that is not enjoying the fullness of the fellowship of Jesus. And Jesus is knocking at the door of my church, Bethlehem, or maybe at the door of your family. Knock, knock, knock. You, you, you as a family aren't even praying together. And I come into the midst of two or three uniquely. I'm always here. I'm always there in one sense. But I I show up in a manifest and special way where two or three people, like a mom and a dad and a daughter, my family, are bowing over the word of God in the morning and the evening. and, And I'm knocking on your door because you're not doing that. And I'll come in and I'll eat with you. And this is a picture. I'll eat with you. This is what you do with your, the friends you really enjoy being with, right? You sit at the table, you're so relaxed, you, you got good food, you got a good friend, things just flow because you can relax with each other and that's what he wants to do. And we, we shut him out, he has to knock. That's the son offering himself. So we should have a, a sweet, personal relationship with the son in the trinity who is knocking on our door and saying I'd like to have a kind of relationship with you which you haven't been enjoying with me recently because you've paid no attention to fellowship the holy spirit third I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So he promises that the Holy Spirit will be in his people. So you should read that and the the Spirit would apply this to you and say, that is amazing. That is amazing. In me, the spirit of the living God. And how could you not then say, thank you, Holy Spirit. I love you. You have, you have been willing in this dirty, sinful, always half-hearted, you've pledged to be in me. You're amazing. You are amazing, Holy, Holy Spirit, that in this unholy frame, you would deign to come and work on me. So those are texts about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit making promises to us about their presence with us and their availability for fellowship uniquely. Now, here are some about our returning. What would the fellowship look like in these in these cases. Oops, wrong direction. First John, the fellowship of the Father. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, John writes, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, I think in that one another there, that's John and God and you. We have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son. So now, he's, now we realize, oh, he's talking about the father here in this, in this fellowship. So we, we have John describing walking in the light, enjoying fellowship with the father while the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And just, just an encouragement here. John, 1 John is one of the scariest books in the New Testament and one of the most encouraging. It's scary because it puts up all these tests to see whether you're really a Christian. And you read some of them, you say, I'm not doing real well this week. And, and right at the front end of the book, he says, following this, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Because he knows he's going to say some things that make it sound like you might be sinless. Over, over chapter 3, verse 9, he says, those who are born of God do not go on sinning. I say, oh, well, it rules me out and everybody else. And, and you know he doesn't mean perfection because back in chapter 1, he said, I didn't include it in the slide, in verse 8 following, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. If we say we... Do, and he used both tenses, have not sinned and do not have sin. Both of them, lest we say, oh, yeah, we, we got saved. We used to sin. We don't sin anymore. And he's just absolutely ruling that out, which means that walking in the light cannot mean sinlessness. So if, you, if you were to read this and say, if we walk in the light, if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship. You say, well, I can never have fellowship because I sometimes I'm stumbling around in the dark and walking in the light in John's chapter doesn't mean walking without sin. It means walking with sufficient light that when you see sin, you hate it, fight it, and renounce it and move on. Because if you said it meant sinlessness, you would contradict verse 8, 9, 10, where he says, if we say we have no sin, we're just liars. We're deceiving ourselves. So walking in the light is walking in the light of grace, in the light of the gospel, in the light of all that God is for us in Jesus, so that when we do, I mean, just very practically, you're walking through the morning and your friend says something to you that wounds, you respond by not returning good for evil, but evil for evil, and 20 seconds later, you know that was wrong. Now, does that mean that morning you were not walking in the light? It does not mean that. Whether you were walking in the light or not is going to depend on what you do 20 seconds later in your heart and in your mind. If you say, no big deal, done with that stuff anyway. Not going to try to keep doing that legalistic stuff. Can't do it anyway, blah, blah, blah. I've seen people walk away from God that way. But if you say, God, I hate that. I hate that about me. I'm sorry. And then if occasion arises, go back there and say you're sorry to that person too. That means that whole thing was in the light. 
and, and Jesus had not left you, and you had not left him. So fellowship with one another, that is vertically and horizontally, is possible because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from such sin. So that's fellowship with the Father as we are walking and relying and, and responding to him. And here's fellowship with the Son. 1 Corinthians 1, nine. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So becoming a Christian, Paul says, is being called into a fellowship, into a communion, into a relationship. This is why... You know, when evangelicals over against certain liturgical traditions insist on asking their mom or sister, but do you have a personal relationship with him? And what is that stuff? We don't even talk like that in our, in our religion. You know, I've, I've, I've stood beside the bed of men who are dying, who... who visited our church regularly because their wives were here and they had grown up in another tradition, very liturgical, very formal, never used that kind of language at all, and they didn't know what I'm talking about. Now, I don't really care about the names you put on these things very much, but the reality, this is, we, we are called into a fellowship with the Son. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to be converted, to be a Christian and, and so whatever language you can find to help people discern if that's real for them, do you have a relationship with him? If they say, well, I don't use that language. Well, well, tell me, help me. I'm just trying to get this verse uh, into language so that I can, we can enjoy him together in a relationship like this, a fellowship where, where there are personal expressions going to him as a person, the son, the son, I love you, Jesus. I remember when I first came to Bethlehem, this just comes to my mind right now, there were 24 deacons, I gotta be careful here because there might be some people left over, I don't think there are, I've outlived everybody just about, um, and, and, uh, and only one of them only one of them ever referred to Jesus as Jesus. The rest had very formal language, and I didn't, I didn't assume they weren't believers. I, just, I was just taking note. What is it about this man that spoke of Jesus as his friend? And the others were like, the Lord and God, and, and always, always he and not you. And, and it was just... There's a difference, a difference. And I, as a young pastor, I looked at that old man. I'll tell you who it was. It was Roland Erickson who, who talked that way. For just a handful of you will know who that was. He's with the Lord now. And I just admired him so much. I said, I want to be like that with, with his beautiful, long shock of gray hair. I, I, I lost my hair. And he, his turned all beautiful white. And I thought, <laughs> I want to be like that. He looks like God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the Lord knows what we need, right? Um, but he, he spoke of the Son. He spoke of Jesus. He manifestly walked with the Son of God. That's what attracted me so. This was real. This is real for him. Now the Holy Spirit. 
2 Corinthians 13, the benediction, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion or fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Or another one on the Holy Spirit here from Philippians 2. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit in one purpose. So one of the things that was foundational for this unity in the church was an enjoyment of fellowship with the Spirit. So one of the things I hope the Lord does for you through this seminar is just first awaken you to the awareness that such is possible and then awaken in your heart the real sense this is doable that you would henceforth in your life have a a personal relationship with the Father and a personal relationship with the Son and a personal relationship with the Spirit. And as you read your Bible, there would be a heightened awareness now of things that the Spirit does for you and the Son does for you and the Father does for you who are calling out of your heart responses that make for sweet hourly fellowship with Him. Let me show you. We live in a day that simply astonishing with regard to technology, right? So I'm working off an iPad here, and um, there's an app right there, W-A-G online, W-J-E, Works of Jonathan Edwards Online. Search. I'm just doing this the way I would do it. So C-O, communion. with God. So you want to see wherever Edwards talked about the phrase communion with God. You hit it. This is, this is and there they are. Is that incredible? I mean, I would have paid $10,000 for that 20 years ago. <laughs> it's free. This is everything Edwards ever wrote online for free. I mean, you just cannot imagine such a thing. I mean, this next to the Bible. <laughs> so I was doing this this afternoon. I'm scrolling down here looking at um, David Brainerd. So where's David Brainerd? There it is. The life of David Brainerd. And all these quotes, so if you want to see how did David Brainerd in the wilderness, dying of leukemia, at age 29, have fellowship with God. It's right there in 30 seconds. It's just incredible. Okay. But that's... Now, we're in our outline at pursuing communion with God through meditation on God's word. Before communion with God, there must be spiritual life. This life comes by the Word. So you can see the way I'm thinking here. If we're going to say that the Word of God has a connection with communion with God or fellowship with God, the first way that comes to my mind is 
you can't commune with God if you're dead. Right? Which everybody is apart from the awakening, quickening work called regeneration, new birth. So communion with God is only possible by regeneration, having life. How does that happen? And I'm arguing at this point, it happens by the Word. So there's no communion with God without the Word because there's no life without the Word. So let's look at some texts where I get that idea. You have been born again, 1 Peter 1, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. And then if you keep reading down to verse 25, which I didn't include here, it says, that Word is the gospel which we preached to you. (coughs) So how does the um, Spirit bring about life in an unspiritual and dead heart? He does it through the living and abiding, the living and enduring Word of God. So if you want to commune with God, you want life. And if you want life, you have the Word do it. Or here's James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth. He brought us forth caused us to be born again by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So the words of Jesus become life. They penetrate and they create life. John 6.63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So again and again in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, the seed, the imperishable seed, by the living and abiding word, penetrate the heart and give it Life, create life. A new creature is born. And you can't ever separate these. Word and spirit come together. The Holy Spirit doesn't awaken people without the word. The word does not create life without the spirit. It's the spirit using the word. The spirit has a sword. The sword of the spirit is the word. And the sword penetrates or like a a scalpel cuts away all the dead calloused Stuff and takes out the heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. That's the way he does it. So that's the first thing. We are given life through the gospel. This life-giving word wakens and sustains faith, which is the crucial means of meeting God in his word. So it's my second way of thinking about how does the word relate to fellowship? The word awakens faith, or that life which the word awakens is a life that gives expression through faith, and faith is the means by which we commune with the unseen God. So texts, faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So faith from hearing, and hearing 
by the word of Christ. Nobody gets faith. Faith is not awakened apart from hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17, or John 20, 31. These things, John says, have been written. So the gospel of John is written so that you may believe. So the writing is the means to the believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life. So where does life come from, out of which you can relate as a living person to the living God? It comes from believing. And where does believing come from? It comes from the written word. John's gospel is written so that believer and unbeliever would read it and their faith would be awakened. And it's amazing what God has done through that gospel through the centuries, both for believers and for unbelievers by making it the means of new birth. Here's another example of how the word awakens faith. Now, what I'm going to do here, I couldn't get it all on one slide. So Jeremiah 17 is on one slide, and Psalm 1 is on another slide, and I want you to kind of imagine them side by side so that when you lay them on top of each other, you can see how they illumine each other. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord, for he will be like a tree, like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves remain green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. So why does trust make the tree green? Because it's planted by the water of the truth and the word and the grace of God is sinking its roots down. So no matter how hot and desert-like this wind is up here in the circumstances of life, the roots of your life are sunk by faith, by trust, down into God and his word. So that the sap of, of grace and the sap of wisdom and comfort and and joy and hope are coming up on those, those limbs that are being battered by all these hot winds, and the leaves are green, lo and behold. And the people around you who are all drying up with bitterness and anger and rage because of the circumstances they're in will look at your tree, perhaps, and say, How come your leaves are green? Why aren't you drying up with anger and drying up with rage and drying up with bitterness and and, and your answer is going to be because I, I trust in the Lord and my roots are sunk somewhere else than in the circumstances of, of life. Now, that's Jeremiah. Nothing there about the Word of God. But notice the parallel. I mean, I'm sure you've already seen it if you're a Bible reader. Here's, here's Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. So now we have, we have Bible meditation here. On his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and in everything he does, he prospers. So now put those beside each other. Jeremiah, 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. He's like a tree. And Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on the, the instruction and law of the Lord day and night. He's like a tree that has green leaves and lots of fruit when every, everybody else is drying up. So my, my way of putting those together is to say that what we, what we trust is the word of God. It's, it's the word that begets faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. So when we meditate on the word, say day and night, which is one of the great reasons, by the way, to memorize scripture. I mean, admittedly, having smartphones reduces the need for that, but not entirely. I mean, when I wake up in the morning, this is my alarm clock, so it's going I'm scrambling to turn off quick so Noel won't be awakened, and my finger never works. Swipe, 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 and it just, (laughs) what's wrong with my finger? So now it's turned off. What's the first button I push? The first button I push is that red one right there. Fighter verse. This slight momentary affliction. I'm lying in bed like this, barely awake. This slight momentary affliction. <laughs> I do have it memorized by, you know, second or third day I'm working on it. So I don't have to do the phone, but that's sweet. I mean, this, this, these, these things, iPads and phones, are devilish in their temptation, right? We all know how you could become a really lecherous, wicked person in what you do with this. And they are Gold, if your heart is gold. They, they, they just can feed your soul so amazingly, so readily. So form the habit of defaulting to Bible apps, not drudge. Or worse. So the point there is Jeremiah 17 and Psalm 1 is that Faith or trust in the Lord gives you life, green life in the midst of drought. And, and it happens because you're meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And that's how faith is, is nourished and how faith expresses itself. Here's some more text on the word as life-giving. Proverbs 22, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your mind to my knowledge for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you that they may be ready on your lips so that your trust your trust may be in the Lord I have taught you today even you keep them what The words of the wise man. Keep them in you, within you. Why? So that your trust may be in the Lord. So how does trust stay strong in the Lord so that you can say in the midst of Hurricane Sandy, I trust you on Staten Island. Psalm 78. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children 
that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Why? Why would you want to pass on to your children the word of God? So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. So where does hope come from? So if you're going to commune with God and say, I hope in you. I'm banking on you. Everything around my soul is giving away and I'm banking on you. You are my hope. Where does that come from? How does the heart rise to that instead of getting angry at God? And the answer is here because somebody passed on to us testimony, commandments, that they might be given to the children yet unborn. Tell them to their children. We, we want our kids to have hope in God. And we want ourselves to have hope in God. So we appropriate his word. See, faith in turn is the means of living in communion with God. So the word produces life. It produces life by uh, awakening faith, and faith becomes now the means of living in communion with God. So a few verses about that. Galatians 2.20. When I was uh, 20 years old, sophomore, this verse became precious to me. I wrote it in the front of my King James Bible and have used it for my steadying over and over again, my orienting of life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So, the picture here, it seems to be, seems to me is I live a certain way. The life I live in the flesh. So I, I'm, I'm in the body with all of its, its uh, brokenness and weakness and inclinations that drag me this way and that. But I am walking in that body. I'm living by faith in the Son of God. And the reason I'm trusting him Faith in him is because he loved me and he gave himself for me. So faith is reaching out and receiving the love of Jesus. I receive your love, Jesus. You loved me. And the way you showed that you loved me is by giving yourself for me, which means that very, very central and ever-present to your mind concerning how you relate to Jesus is his death. And ever asking, Jesus, please, don't ever let me lose my grip on your cross. Don't ever let me fail to see how massive was the suffering, how great was your sacrifice, which means how much you loved me, so that in this circumstancing, he's, he's living by this, he's living, all right? He's not just doing this in church. He's, he's getting up 
on Monday morning by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He's eating breakfast by faith in the Son of God who loved me. He's getting in the car and turning on the radio or not by, the, by faith. And he's going to work and he's dealing with all the stuff that he has to deal with by faith in the Son of God who loved him. And, and he's just saying to himself and enjoying Jesus saying to him, I love you, I love you, I love you. Are you don't, don't forget that right now as you're starting to get angry at the person who did something harmful to you. Remember how much harm was done to me for you. This changes everything. So that's what it would mean by faith to walk in communion with the Son day by day. Day, hour by hour. Another example. Here, this is a sequence of texts that are, are just magnificent. I want you to see the connections between Galatians and Romans 5 and Romans uh, 6 to 8. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law? Answer, No. Or by hearing with faith? Answer, yes. So now what is that saying? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. And so let's turn it into a statement. God provides you, supplies you, present tense, just pouring out, with the Spirit. And by that Spirit, he does amazing things in you and through you, miracles. Does he do this? By your earning it by works of the law? No. He does it by your hearing, presumably, his word with faith. So the Holy Spirit then now is active, working, present as a person in your life by faith. Faith in something heard. Word, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you present yourself with the word of God, holding up your smartphone before you get out of bed, and you say, I trust you, I believe that. I will look to the things that are unseen now. I will believe you that this is all working, a weight of glory for me today with all perplexing things I've got. It's going to work for me, a weight of glory. I trust you with that. Throw the covers off. Go brush your teeth in that confidence. And when that happens, the Spirit is being poured into your life. You're not doing that. That's very unnatural. That's the Holy Spirit at work in your life. He's flowing through the Word. He's flowing through faith, creating it as he goes. Okay, now, expanding that idea in Romans 5.5. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So what what happens in the heart when the Holy Spirit is supplied? And the answer is, the love of God is poured out through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So God's love for you is felt by the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is moving through faith. So this faith here 
in Galatians 3.5 is the conscious key to the experience of the Spirit's moving and embodying, as it were, the love of God in you. In fact, if we were to push on this from a Trinitarian standpoint, I would argue that the Holy Spirit is the love of God in person. So that the Father is loving the Son, and the Son is loving the Father from all eternity, and this joy and delight and satisfaction and infinite energy of love is carrying so much of the Son in His fullness to the Father, and so much of the Father in His fullness to the Son, that it, no longer an it, becomes a a person, namely the Spirit of the Trinity. And when the Spirit is poured in, He is pouring in the love of God, because that's who He is. When when you have the Spirit in you, you have the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, and you experience by His presence love for the Father and love for the Son with the very love that they have for each other. And that comes according to Galatians 3, 5, by faith, hearing with faith. Let me read 5.5 again and relate it to Psalm 143. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love for I trust in you. So, Grant me to experience your love, hear your love, so you're lying in bed, and it seems like early in the morning he was saying, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for I trust in you, as though trusting in you would be the avenue or the vehicle or the means by which the love that God has for him flows into his life. It becomes manifest and discernible in his heart. So faith, the point I'm making here, is that faith, in turn, is the means of living in communion with God. Now back to Romans 5, the later verses, 6 through 8. The love of God has been poured into, uh, poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us for, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's, he's giving some kind of support for this, this present experience of the love of God being poured out. It's being poured out right now by the Holy Spirit in me for... And then he, and then he talks about history. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died. That's 2,000 years ago. So the Holy Spirit's being poured out in my heart right now for Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates, and I put the Greek in here because everybody would see it who takes Greek, see that it's present tense. Present, ongoing. He's, he's right now 
demonstrating, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as past. So, the point here is this. God has ordained that we experience his love presently by the Spirit through being made aware and reminded of a historical event 2,000 years ago. And this is, and this is not a logical inference. This is an experience of the Holy Spirit being poured out. Right? And yet, the logic of it is here. And I conclude from this that the way the Spirit works, a sense of the love of God for me is that the story is told again. The old, old story is told again of of, of the old rugged cross and 2,000 years ago and the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and through faith pours the love of God by the Spirit into my heart so that it becomes joyfully experienced. And lifts me up out of my moroseness and my self-pity and my discouragements. It's a miracle when that happens. Which is the way we want to live. And we have to look to the story over and over again. I commend to you to, to think about the logic of those verses often. The love of God has been, is now, that tense is a a present state as a result of a past action, uh, has been poured out in your hearts by the Spirit and the ground of your knowing it, the grounds of your experiencing it, is to be told that he demonstrates his love for you by reminding you of a 2,000-year-old action. And the only way you can do that is by his word. And so the word sustains the faith, which is the bridge or the channel of the spirit, which makes for communion with him. D, this communion with God by faith is through his word again. 1 John 1. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at with touch with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. So this is proclamations, his word, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. So you see the connection between the proclamation of what was seen and heard, Jesus Christ, the word incarnate, we saw him, we touched him, and now we're, we're the, the connection between the historical Jesus and you is, is our authoritative, inspired proclamation. And why do we give you that proclamation? So that, so that, oops, you too 
may have fellowship with us. That's just amazing. You can't, you can't do an end run around that proclamation and expect to know Jesus, expect to fellowship with Jesus, expect to have a personal relationship. And, and this, this is bothersome to some people who are more, less word-oriented, more experience-oriented. And they just, they want to get to it quick. They want to get to the experience quick. And I don't blame anybody for that. But you know what? This is a book. God decided to give us a book as a means of experiencing Jesus, which means you've got to learn how to read to enjoy it in its full. Or if not learn how to read, learn how to hear and make sense out of oral language. You can't escape word. And the reason is because he has planned for this proclamation to produce, see, the so that, the logical connection, fellowship. The way you come into fellowship with the living Christ is by hearing a proclamation about the historical Jesus and the living Christ comes to you. See the triangle here? Get draw it in the air. Here's the, here's the 2,000-year-old historical Jesus dying for you and rising again. And here he is in heaven today, ready and eager, knocking on your door, ready to commune with you and fellowship with you. And you must hear this to enjoy this. And in the enjoyment of this, this is where he comes. He comes with this word. If I were to draw it, I wouldn't draw it like a triangle. I would draw it like this. And like, okay, he's coming. And, and I don't meet him any other way. If, if I try or if people try to meet Jesus any other way than the authority of the book, you know what happens? Mormonism happens. Jehovah's Witness happens. Spiritism happens. Oprah Winfrey happens. When you, when you pull yourself out from under this authoritative word as Jesus and say, I want to experience another way, you'll get experiences. And they can be very powerful. But they won't be fellowship with the real Jesus who is the Jesus of the book, who comes to us in a living way. So I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for people who, who get impatient with excessive bookishness or academic efforts or, or um, doctrinal wrangling when they want Jesus. But I'm... I'm a chancellor of a college and seminary, and it's not by accident. All my enjoyment of Jesus has been heightened the better I've known the book. My experience for the 50 years or so that I've been a Christian, 60 years I've been a Christian, has not been the harder I work on the book, the more I miss Jesus, the, the person. This has not been my experience, and therefore I, I teach the seminar the way I do it, at least Text, 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 instead of me just telling you stories about my experience or whatever. Because I think this is the reliable thing. I'm not reliable. This is reliable. This is where the Holy Spirit will, will work. So First John 1, 1 to 3, same point. Still on it. First John 5. This is powerful. This, this requires a little, little effort to see. So... What is the testimony of the Holy Spirit so that you can enjoy 
the, the test that the Spirit is, is witnessing in you. What is that? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is that he has testified concerning his son. It's a little odd to say it like that, but hold it. It'll get clearer, I think. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. If you're a believer, you have the testimony of God in you. What what is that? What, What does he mean? The one who does not believe has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. Ah, ah. So that's the closest thing we're going to get, I think, to a definition. The testimony is this. God has given believers Life, life, now and forever. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. So when you believe the Son, you have the testimony because you have life, and life is the testimony. If you do not have the Son, you do not have life. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have life. I've written these things that you may have life. So let me see if I can put all that together. Go back. The one who believes, change colors here. The one who believes in the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. So believers have the testimony. And what is the testimony? This is the testimony that God has given you eternal life. You would not be a believer if he hadn't given you life. Life is the opposite of spiritual deadness. Spiritually dead people do not trust God. They do not treasure God. They do not enjoy God. They find God mythological or boring or a harsh master and try to impress him. When you get life through faith, you know him for who he is. And that's the witness within you. The witness within you is that you love him. You cry out, Father, Romans 8. Um, All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For he did not give us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but a spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit witnessing with our spirit, we are the children of God. We're alive as children of God. How do you know? Because your spirit is saying, Father. You're relating to him as father. You're trusting him as father. You're submitting to him as father. You're counting on his care as your father. That's the witness in you that you're alive. Unbelievers don't do that. Natural people don't do that. They don't relate to God that way. 
It says also in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Which means that if your heart rises up and cries out, my Lord, my God, my Master, my Owner, that's the Holy Spirit of life in you and a testimony from God Almighty, your mind. So those are two, two ways the Spirit crying out, Abba, Father, the Spirit crying out, Jesus is Lord. I'm not talking about vain language that a computer can do. I'm talking about a heart that says, my Father, and a heart that says, my Lord, my owner, my master, means it. If you find your heart doing those two things, guess what's happening? God Almighty, by His Spirit, is in you and is bearing witness that you have life. The life is in you. You're alive. Dead people don't say, Jesus is Lord, and dead people don't say, God is my Father, and mean it. And that happens by the Word. That's the point of this long D section. Communion with God by faith is through His Word. This testimony, which is life, was spoken to me. This is my Son. Hear Him. Believe Him. And it awakened it awakened my life. I'm going to skip this next one, that entire section. F. David's testimony to the way the word sustains communion with God. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, in keeping them is great reward. So, the law of the Lord is perfect. And as you immerse, this word law here, let me just clarify. Uh, Torah in Hebrew is instruction. And it's used in lots of different ways. Sometimes for a legal code, most often his instruction. So don't, don't hear too much demandingness in this word here. Hear a lot of instruction about the nature of God and his ways and works in the world. The Torah was a tasty, sweet, honey-like thing. So when you meditate on the instruction of, of the Lord, your soul is restored. So I'm trying to show that the word sustains communion with God. It has all these effects. It restores the soul And isn't that encouraging that the soul must be restored? It's like the Lord's Prayer. 
right after saying, give us this day our daily bread, daily bread, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, which you probably have to do every day, which means you need to be restored. Don't, don't have a perfectionistic notion of the Christian life. It'll kill you. It will drive you away from the faith. But if you have a, a robust understanding of grace and a sweet experience of regular repentance, then these kinds of language will make sense. The law of the Lord is perfect, and one of its perfections is that it has the power to revivify or restore. The word is, is restore your life. It makes you wise. It makes the simple wise, not the academic and complicated. Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to go to seminary to experience this. In fact, heady people often miss it. And simple people often get it. The precepts of the Lord are right rejoicing. And this rejoicing is not rejoicing in stuff. It's rejoicing in, in God. The precepts of the Lord incline us to rejoice in God. And that's one of the returns we make in fellowship. The Lord speaks to us a, a precept and we respond back to say, that's good. That is so good. It makes me glad you told me not to commit adultery. It makes my marriage so much better. Thank you. You believe that? Thank you for telling me not to steal. If I had, if I had ripped off IRS year after year at, by age 66, I would just be so depressed, so discouraged, so defeated, and you've spared me. You've spared me by teaching me not to love money and telling me, don't steal, don't steal. And I would say, yes, that's a good precept. I just am so happy that you told me that. Rejoice is the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Paul prays that in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we may know the hope for which we're, to which we're called and the, and the inheritance that's so great and the power at work in those who believe. And that comes by attending to the commandments of God and all of his other ways of speaking to us. And thus they become gold to us, better than gold, more desirable than gold. And they become sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. And they become wonderful protections against foolish choices that destroy our lives. So the word of God has these effects of intensifying and sweetening and rewarding our communion with God. And, and I put this down here at the bottom. I added this this afternoon, this First Samuel 3.21, so that it would be more explicit. I should have included it here, but I think when I did these slides, I didn't have it in my head. First um, Samuel 3.21, um, I want you to see it. So get, go over here. Read that. 
The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The the reason all this stuff is true about the word enabling communion is that this happens through the word. God reveals himself at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So when I go to my Bible every morning, I don't open it primarily looking for doctrinal clarification. That will happen, but it's down a priority or two. I go looking for Jesus. I go looking for the Father. I go looking for the Spirit. I want to have fellowship. I want to meet them because it's, it's the friendship, it's the relationship that, that gives uh, life and is the meaning of existence. It's, it's not the, the head construing of sentences and doctrines is a means. Theology is a means to doxology. It's not not the other way around. Everything is terminating on a relationship. Everything's terminating on, on this. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. If there was another way to have Jesus, I would take it. But there isn't. He has ordained that he be known and enjoyed and fellowship with by the word. Now, six minutes to go, and we're at a new section. Oh, no, 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 we're not at a new section. This is going to be perfect. Ooh, we've got three more to go, in fact. Okay, good, do this. I want to finish the section on Word this evening. Thinking hard about the Word uh, does not replace the illuminating work of God's grace. That was implicit in what I just said. Let's see the verse where I I get that. Uh, Timothy, think over... What I say, for the Lord will grant you understanding in everything. So I'm arguing here that thinking about what the Bible says, think over what I say. Thinking about it does not replace God's sovereign communicating communication of himself and the understanding that we need to get the word and to get through the word. Because here, it it doesn't say, think over what I say, and you won't need the Lord to give you anything because you'll just figure it out. And it doesn't say, the Lord will give you understanding, so you don't need to think about it. It says, think over what I say, because that's the way. So this this, uh, granting here and this thinking here are means end right there. This is the means and this is the end. Think over what I say. When you open your Bible, don't let your mind be passive. Think about these sentences with a prayer. Oh God, fulfill 2 Timothy 2.7 this morning as I think about your word. Same thing in Proverbs 2.1-6. I don't think we need to read that. It says exactly the same thing. Now a testimony from from John Owen, how fellowship of the Holy Spirit is experienced through the promises of God. And this is really close. You know, I wrote a whole book on this, more or less, called Future Grace, the purifying power of living by faith in future grace. Future grace is just a fancy word for promises. 
the promises of God. It's, that book is an effort to explain standing on the promises. I cannot fail. That's just that great old hymn. I said, okay, let's write a book about that. And, that, and I just gave it a different name so that it would sell more copies. <laughs> the life and soul of all our comforts lie treasured up in the promises of Christ. Amen, they do. So the life and the soul of all our comforts lie treasured up in the promises, the promises of Christ. They are the breasts of all our consolation. Who knows not how powerless they are in the bare letter? Meaning, just to have a promise written in a book and you're going into your eyes and going into your brain, nothing happens about confidence and joy and hope. That's all there is, just a bare, just a bare letter. Even when improved to the uttermost by our considerations of them. So mere thinking isn't enough. And meditation on them as also how unexpectedly they sometimes break upon the soul with a conquering, endearing life and vigor. Here, faith deals peculiarly with the Holy Ghost. It considers the promises themselves. Yes, I'm reading. I consider the promise. I'll never leave you. Looks up to him, the Holy Spirit, waits for him, considers his appearances in the word, depended on. This is worth gold to linger over John Owen here. He's, a, he's gone deep with this. He knows what he's talking about here. And he's saying the bare promise won't do it. But waiting upon the Holy Spirit, looking up to him and receiving him. Considers it depended on, owns him in his work and efficacy. No sooner does the soul begin to feel the life of a promise, warming his heart, relieving, cherishing, supporting, delivering from fear, entanglements, or troubles, but it may, it ought to know that the Holy Spirit is there, which will add to his joy and lead him into fellowship with him. So here's here's what he's saying. You read a promise. I will help you. I will strengthen you. Every time I'm sitting on the front pew at Bethlehem, I'll do this tomorrow night, just before I get up to preach, my head is bowed. I'm not reading the text, but the guy was reading the text. I'm praying. And I'm generally praying, my little aptat, but especially the T in aptat. Admit you can do nothing. Pray for help. Trust a promise. Act. Give him thanks that he helped you. But right here at this T is where I am. I'm laying hold on a promise. I'll help you again. We've done this together for 33 years. I will help you again. I have not left you. I won't leave you. I will put words in your mouth. Trust me. And this says that as that promise becomes, how does he say it? conquering, endearing life and vigor. Here, faith deals peculiarly with the Holy Ghost. It considers the promises themselves. That's what I'm doing right there. Looks up to him. I'm looking up. I'm waiting for him. It's just 30 seconds before I preach. Considers his appearances, his appearances in the word. Now, what he means by that is the word takes on a yes. I mean this, John Piper. Feel this. And, and frankly, sometimes I feel it way more than others. I mean, it's just, that's life, right? 
Sometimes you go in with a huge sense. God has addressed me. God has spoken to me through the word. And other times you just say, I believe it. It's true. I'm not feeling a lot right now, but I'm going because you told me to go. It's my job. It's what you want me to do. No sooner does the soul begin to feel the life of a promise, warming the heart, relieving the the fear, the anxiety, cherishing us, supporting, delivering from fear, delivering from entanglements or troubles. As the promise begins to do that, then you ought to know that the Holy Spirit is there. You need, to, you need to learn how to read the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, how would you know? How would you know if you were not told by God how his Holy Spirit is experienced? And I think this is right. He's telling you when the Word of God in promise starts to feel like life, warming the heart, relieving you, cherishing you, supporting you, delivering you from fear. Entanglements are starting to fall away. Troubles are not dragging you down anymore. God is present. The Holy Spirit is at work in your life and it leads you, he says, into fellowship. Last line there, with him. So you pause right there or as I walk to the pulpit, I whisper, Thank you, Holy Spirit. Now, hold on to me these next 45 minutes or so. Thank you. I love you. I lean on you. Thank you for being obedient to the Father and coming to help me. Last section, I think, here. Since Owen's called, and we're three minutes over, to do this real quick. John Owen's called to give ourselves to contemplating the revelations. What poor, low, perishing things do we spend our contemplations on? Were we to have no advantage by this astonishing dispensation, contemplating God, yet its excellency, glory, beauty, depths, deserve the flower of our increase, this mediatory role of of Christ to make a way to the Father. Yet its excellency, glory, beauty, depths deserve the flower, the flower of our inquiries, not the leftovers, the vigor of our spirits, the substance of our time. But when with all our life, our peace, our joy, our inheritance, our eternity, our all lies herein, shall not the thoughts of it, Christ's mediatorial role, making us a way to fellowship with the Father, always dwell in our hearts, always refresh and delight our souls. So one of the effects I hope that you leave with this evening is a awakened sense, Lord, I really do spend a lot of my contemplations on low things, not evil things, just such in things that don't compare to what you have offered me in your word by your spirit. So, Father, as we go now, I pray that we would go in the strength that you supply and that we would experience this supply by the hearing of faith, not the works of the law, and that as we trust you, Holy Spirit, you would come. Jesus, you would come. Father, you would come, and we would enjoy fellowship with you this evening. I ask this in the name of the Son.
Amen.